going to ask that you take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We are at Mark chapter 14. So wherever you might have access to a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to take that as we ask God to bless our time together in the preaching and teaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that there is no other name that is greater and higher in all the universe. Thank you that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Father, we pray that we would do more than just sing about that name, but we would prize that name, that we would honor that name, and we would proclaim that name uh, throughout the places that you might place us. Thank you for another opportunity in our worship service to open up your word and to have you speak to us. We need your help. We need your enablement. We need you to do only what you can do. We recognize and acknowledge that your word is living, that your word is effective, is cutting, is penetrating, and is discerning. But Father, we need you to take your word and make it just that in our individual lives. Help us to heed your word uh, as we hear it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A special hymn that Christians often sing is More Love to Thee. I want you to listen to the words of the first stanza. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. And as Christians, we yearn and we long for and we desire to have a greater love for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In our own ways and at different times, we want to have a greater devotion to the one who died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. It's an encouragement when we encounter believers who have a great devotion and a great love for Jesus Christ. And sometimes we encounter those believers in the Word of God. Sometimes it can be in biographies that we might read, and sometimes it's through our interpersonal relationships that we encounter a Christian, a believer, who, who loves Jesus Christ deeply. One whose life is characterized by this song, More Love to Thee. Our text provides us with an example of an individual who's devoted to Jesus Christ. The example is not from one of the religious leaders 
of Jesus' day. Uh, neither is the example from one of his disciples. The example comes from an unnamed woman. Because what's important is not her name, but instead her devotion, her act to Jesus. And so when we come to our text, I want to label it an unnamed woman devotion to Jesus. Here, presented in the word of God, we get to look at a great example of what it means for someone to love Jesus and what it means to be devoted to Jesus. And this event is recorded in the Gospels and other places, but I don't want to look at any other place but Mark's Gospel. I want us to see this event through the eyes of the writer, Mark. Mark structures it in a way that we've become familiar with as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark. It's a sandwich. Mark loves to use the structure of a sandwich where there are two pieces of bread and meat within the slices of bread. And that's exactly how this passage is structured. When we come to verses 1 and 2, we see the devotion of this unnamed woman that is contrasted with the plot of the religious leaders. Her devotion is contrasted with the plot of the religious leaders. That's the first slice of bread. And always remember when Mark presents this sandwich, what's the most important thing aren't the slices of bread. What's the most important thing is the meat. And we'll get to the meat in verses 3 through 9 when we look at this woman's devotion to Jesus. But before we get there, Mark contrasts her devotion to Jesus with the plot of the religious leaders. And Mark provides us with the setting of what takes place in these verses. He says that it happens at the Passover and the unleavened bread. Now, I don't think well, any of us have a Jewish background. And so a lot of the feasts and the major events in the Jewish calendar, we're just not familiar with. And so as Jesus is about to be crucified in a couple of days, Mark wants us to know what the scenery is, what the setting is. Jesus is not in the temple, but time-wise, it's the time almost for the Passover and what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, those of you who grew up in Sunday school, you know what the Passover is. You know that's when the death angel passed over the houses of the Israelites who had put blood on the doorposts and the lintel, and they did not experience the death of their firstborn. But all of those houses in Egypt that did not have that blood applied, the firstborn in that household was killed. And so in the history of the Jewish faith, in, as a part of Judaism, they recognized the Passover. It was one of the major feasts that required people to come from everywhere to Jerusalem. 
And they remember, just like later on today, we will remember the Lord's Supper. They remembered how God, through the death angel, passed over the homes of those Israelites who took God for his word and applied blood to their doorposts. But that's not the only thing that happened. As soon as they were told to celebrate the Passover, there's also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that celebrates basically Israel leaving Egyptian bondage. Remember how they were enslaved, how they were mistreated, and God delivers them with his mighty hand out of Egypt. And one of the things that they were told to do during their first seven days that was kicked off by the Passover, that they were to eat unleavened bread. And so this is the time of the year, March, April time frame, when Jews have come from everywhere to celebrate the festival, to celebrate the Passover, and to also celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is something the Jews were to do year after year after year. Two days prior to the actual celebrating of this festival, we find that the Jewish leaders are plotting to take hold of Jesus Christ with the goal and with the purpose that they want to kill him. They're trying to come up with a plan. They're trying to come up with a strategy where they can do this as a covert operation so that they don't get in trouble with the people uh, that Jesus is popular with. And so they're strategizing. They're scheming. They're trying to come up with a deceptive way where they could grab Jesus, not arrest him, but actually seize him. And the reason why they want to seize him is because they hate him. These religious leaders the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Many of them were Pharisees. They hated the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and this is not the first time that they're committed to try to kill him. Back in chapter 12, when Jesus cleansed the temple, and these chief priests and these scribes saw what was taking place, they made a commitment at that time that they were going to destroy Jesus. And out of our Lord's own words, when he predicted his death, he said several times that he would be handed over and betrayed and killed by the religious leaders. So here they are. It's probably Wednesday. On Friday, the Lord will be put to death. They are scheming. They are plotting. How can they put their hands on Jesus and kill him. And as they're plotting and they're scheming, in the back of their minds, they have a great fear. They're scared of the people. And that's why they say in verse 2, not during the festival. Don't let it happen then. Why? Lest there be a riot of the people. At this point in time, the people are favorable to Jesus. It doesn't mean that they're following him. It doesn't mean that they're believing him. But they like what he is saying, and they're favorable to him. 
And in just a matter of days, that's all going to change. The one that they're favorable to, they're going to cry out, crucify him, kill him, put to death. But the strategy of these religious leaders, the plot that they come up with to grab hold of Jesus because they hate him and they want to kill him, they got to be very, very careful so that it doesn't ruffle the crowd's feathers, doesn't cause an uproar, does not cause them to get in trouble with the people. And it's this backdrop, their hatred of Jesus Christ that is contrasted with the love of this woman. When you look at this first slice of bread, it's picturing hatred for Jesus. And against this black backdrop of hatred for Jesus Christ, shines a beautiful diamond, the love of this unnamed woman. And so when we come to verses 3 through 9, uh, we see the devotion of this unnamed woman is noteworthy. It's praiseworthy. Uh, It's not something to skip over. It's not something that we should just quickly read through, but we should take note of her devotion and her love for Jesus so that we can have an example of what it means to be devoted to our Savior. So the focus is no longer on the religious leaders. Neither is it on Judas Iscariot that we'll see in verses 10 and 11. The focus is on this unnamed woman. And as far as Mark is concerned, he doesn't care what her name is. And his concern is about what she does. About the act that she demonstrates and expresses. And so there's several things I want you to note about her devotion. First of all, it was costly. The scene is no longer the Passover in the unleavened bread festival. The scene is now Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Bethany was about two miles away from Jerusalem. And it appears that every time that Jesus went into the temple and then he would come out of the temple, he would end up in the evening in Bethany. And so here he's in Bethany. He's at the home of Simon. Now, Simon was a common name, so you shouldn't think every time you see Simon in the Bible, it's the same person. But this Simon is a leopard, or was a leopard. Uh, he, he had to be healed because one of the things about a leopard is you couldn't be around that person. And so the fact that they're having a meal in his house at that time suggests that he was healed of his leprosy. And probably if we were to speculate, it was probably Jesus who healed him of his leprosy. But this event happens in Bethany at the house of Simon the leopard. And Jesus is enjoying a good meal. He was a good Baptist. 
He, he's enjoying a good, good meal. Uh, they say he's reclining at the table. He's not sleeping. Reclining was the position for eating. So he's reclining at the table. He's doing something that they would do at a banquet or a large meal. We don't know who all is there. Uh, Mark just wants us to know is that Jesus is reclining. He's eating. He's enjoying himself. And then all of a sudden, a woman enters into the, the picture. We don't know what her name is. At least Mark doesn't bother to tell us. All Mark wants us to know is that when this woman bursts on the scene, when she comes on the scene, she has an alabaster jar. Now, an alabaster jar was just that. It was a jar. It was a flask. It was not a box. I know some of us sing songs talking about the alabaster box. This was not a box. It was a jar made out of alabaster. And the jar contained perfume. And Mark goes to great lengths to tell us that it wasn't just any kind of perfume. He refers to it as pure nard made from a plant in India. And he tells us it was especially expensive. It cost a whole lot. In fact, in a few more verses, we'll find out how costly the perfume was. But she's not walking around with a jar of cheap perfume. This is very, very expensive perfume. It's considered pure. It's the real thing. And all of a sudden, she does something strange. She breaks and shatters the jar, the, the neck of it. It didn't have any handles. You would just hold it. It was small. And she broke the neck. That was how you got access to what was in the jar. And once she got access to what was in the jar, she took all of that perfume that was in the jar, that expensive, precious, pure perfume, and poured it over the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. She didn't take a little dab and put it on Jesus' head, saying this stuff is expensive, I'll, I'll give him a, a little bit. I'll just tap him on his forehead, he'll smell good. No, she took all of the contents of it. That's why it was broken, so nothing could be held back. And she took all of it and poured it upon his head while he is reclining at the table. And what this presents for us is a marvelous picture of her love for Jesus Christ. Where she would take this expensive perfume, this pure nard, this very costly perfume, and pour it all upon the head of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that nothing at all was left for herself. I mean, she had the perfume probably for her own benefit, but she instead pours the perfume 
on the head of Jesus Christ. Her devotion didn't manifest itself in singing, didn't manifest itself in talk, words. She didn't say, oh, how I love the Lord. She didn't sing, oh, how I love the Lord. She demonstrated it with a sacrificial act that was costly to her so that she gave everything in that jar and poured it on the head of Jesus Christ. Second note, not only was it costly, but in verses 4 and 5, it was a devotion, a sacrificial devotion that was criticized. Mark doesn't tell us who the guilty party is. He's nice. You know, if it had been me and you, we would have said, oh, it was that person, it was that person. They're the ones criticizing. Mark just simply says, some. Now, if you want to know who it might be, I refer you to Matthew 26. I refer you to possibly John 12. On your own, you can read. But Mark doesn't care who it is. Mark's not here to put guilt, so to speak, on certain individuals. He just wants us to know that even though she had done this costly deed, this sacrificial deed, that there were some who took the time to criticize her. They, they expressed their displeasure with her. And what they did, first of all, they were indignant with her action. I mean, it ruffled their feathers. They got a bad attitude when they saw what she had done to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word indignant was used earlier in Mark chapter 10 with regards to Jesus becoming indignant when his disciples prevented parents bringing their children to him. And when the disciples did that, Jesus became indignant. No, let the children come to me. When James and John wanted the best seats in the kingdom, when they wanted to be on the right side of Jesus and the left side of Jesus, and they came and actually expressed that, when the other disciples heard about it, they became indignant. They were displeased. They had an attitude where they were upset. Now, these some, whoever they are, they see what this woman does, and they become indignant. And not only that, they question her action. They ask, why has this perfume been wasted? Especially this, since this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. So not only are they indignant, and they're expressing that to each other. But, but they're asking the question, probably to each other and not to the, the woman. But they're saying, no, why? Why this waste? Why waste this expensive perfume? Just recently, I got the Costco Connection magazine. I go to Costco. I like the free samples. I'm hoping they will return to doing that. But in the Costco Connection magazine, they had a caption 
Waste not. Waste not. And the subcaption was getting excess goods to needy global communities, not landfills. And when these some saw the action of this woman, they in essence said, waste not. Don't pour this expensive perfume on the head of Jesus Christ. Instead, what you ought to do, sell it. It's worth more than 300 denarii. If you think that's like $3, that's like 300 days of work. That's like a year's salary. Think about that. You possess something in your hands that, that in order to acquire, it would take a year's salary. And I don't care if you're on minimum wage or whatever, that's a lot of money. Nobody really wants to invest in something where it takes a year's salary and then all of a sudden, get rid of it. And these, some are saying, why the waste? And they get all uppity, they get all religious and get all spiritual. Doesn't she know that if she sold this, that the money could be used for the poor? And it sounds like a justified comment. But in their minds, what she had done was a waste. So they were indignant with her. They questioned her. And they even scolded her. They berated her. They gave her a good verbal spanking. Verbal abuse being practiced here. So they didn't just keep it to themselves, but they took it out on this unnamed woman. And they spanked her with their words. They hit her in the face with her words. And so we see that despite this costly devotion of this woman, that her actions, her act was criticized by some. But the good news is that even though some might have criticized her actions, Jesus Christ didn't. And so when we come to verses 6 through 9, we see that her actions were commended by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what matters. It matters not what others might say. It matters not what their commentary or their evaluation of our actions and deeds might be. I know we pay, play, play into that. But ultimately, we want to make sure that what we do and what we say is pleasing to the Lord. And so Jesus steps in. Jesus defends the act of this woman. Jesus defends her devotion and her love. And he goes to great lengths to let them know that they're out to lunch on their criticism. And so it begins in verse 6 where Jesus commands them, let her alone. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, says to this some, whoever they are, let her alone. That's the command. 
Don't be fooling with her. Don't be messing with her. Let her alone. And then he questioned them. Why do you bother her? Why do you trouble her? Why are you putting burdens and heavy weights upon her? And then Jesus declares that she has done a good deed. She has done a beautiful work to me. You might think it's a waste of expensive perfume. But Jesus said, I'm interpreting this, that what she has done is a beautiful, marvelous, good work. You see it one way, Jesus said, but I'm the Lord of Lords. I'm telling you that what she has done, this is beautiful. This is marvelous. This is a good work. And as he goes on to explain to her what's going on, Jesus deals with this whole idea of taking care of the poor. Do you remember what the spiritual giant said? Sell the perfume. And the money that you give, get from it. Use it for the poor. And Jesus comes along and says something a little bit different. He doesn't minimize his followers serving the poor and giving to the poor and helping the poor. If you come away with that, you've missed what Jesus is saying. Jesus is in essence saying, look, you have the poor with you always. And you have opportunities to do good. And he expects him to do good. Uh, you, you listen to the teachings of Jesus. He commended individuals to give to the poor. He told that rich young ruler, sell all that you have and give to the poor and follow me. But he was not willing to minister to the poor. Jesus ministered day in and day out, so to speak, to the poor, the outcasts, the down and outs. There's no way that you could look at his ministry and just see a man who's concerned about a person's soul. Jesus, the Lord of Lord, was concerned about the physical well-being of people. He healed people. He fed people. And many of the people he fed. Now, Ryan talked about the feeding of the 5,000. Well, there's a feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. You think all of those people got saved? But Jesus wanted them to know who he is. That he's the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. That he's the authoritative Christ. And so Jesus is not minimizing giving to the poor or helping the poor. The church has a social responsibility to the poor. We do. Whether we do anything or not, we have a responsibility. But Jesus says, there's a greater responsibility. And that is not devotion to the poor, but devotion to him. And whenever there's a conflict between devotion to Jesus and devotion to the poor, guess who wins? The Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Christ is communicating to these some who are indignant that this woman did not sell the perfume and give the money to the poor. 
Jesus said, you always have the poor with them, but you don't always have me with you. This is a significant opportunity. I'm getting ready to go to the cross. And this woman took advantage of the fact that I would not be around much longer. She gave of herself and of her substance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's saying here. He's not saying forget about the poor. He's saying in the midst of ministering to the poor, don't miss out on those opportunities you have to be devoted to Christ and to love Christ, to do actual deeds and acts that reflect that. In verse 8, the the Lord affirms that the woman's deed was costly. We pointed that out earlier. It's clear that this perfume was expensive. And, And the Lord says she has done what she could. That is, she has the things that she has, she's done something with it. And in this case, what does she have? She had an alabaster jar of expensive perfume. And she did something with that alabaster jar of perfume. Not with just some of it. But he said what she has, she has done something with it. And it speaks of the fact that she didn't hold anything back at all. It reminds us of another woman. A poor widow. In Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 41, 41 through 44. Remember that poor widow? She outgave all of those rich people what they gave, but she gave everything that she had. And this woman did the same thing. She wasn't some cheapskate when it came to sacrificing for Jesus. She didn't say, well, I need to save most of this for me. I don't mind giving him a little bit. No, she gave all that she could. And then the commendation ends in verse 9. The Lord emphatically and with certainty promises that wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken in memory of her. That's an amazing promise to an unnamed woman, to a woman whose name we don't know, and we still don't know, according to Mark. But Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, and the implication is the gospel is to be preached everywhere, There is no city, state, country, nation, etc. that is not to receive the gospel. And Jesus says, wherever you preach the gospel, wherever you tell people about being dead in their trespasses and sins, about Christ dying and paying the penalty for your sin, wherever you proclaim the gospel, this is going to be associated with. It's not a part of the gospel, but it's connected. Think about it. Here we are, 
preaching the gospel, reading the gospel of Mark, some 20 centuries later, and there's still a memorial, a testimony to this unnamed woman. Absolutely amazing. You think this event was insignificant? Jesus interprets it as this woman anointing his body prior to his death. Now, in, in the Jewish culture, when a person died, what you wanted to do is that, no, they didn't embalm dead people. They anointed the body with perfumes and spices. And so when we look at the resurrection that Mark presents in Mark 16, you find that these ladies are coming to the tomb where they placed Jesus, and they're coming to anoint him with spices. And the whole purpose of the spices was to keep the stench of death away. And Jesus said, this woman, instead of waiting till I die, this woman has anointed me with perfume in advance. Now, I don't know if this woman understood all of that, but that's how Jesus interprets it. He's saying that what she's doing is a testimony to the reality that I am about to die. He's not, he has not hidden the fact that death is what is in store for him. He, he's marching to Calvary. He's marching to the cross. He's marching to be killed. But the good news is, is on the third day, he will rise from the dead. So Jesus commends the devotion of this woman, defends it against the critics. The last thing that I want you to see as we come to the end of our passage is that in verses 10 and 11, her devotion is contrasted with the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. Instead of the passage ending on a high, it ended on a low. And I remember, you know, as I was studying this, after being so excited about the testimony of this unnamed woman, and then just reading those words, Judas Iscariot. What a contrast. A woman who loved Jesus with a man who betrays Jesus. He's identified, Judas Iscariot. He's identified as one of the twelve. So you can go back to Mark 3, 14 through 19, when Jesus calls his 12 men to be with him and to send them out to preach. Judas Iscariot was listed. But Mark, for our benefit, refers to him as Judas Iscariot, the one who betrays Jesus. Well, now when we come to verses 10 and 11, we see the beginning steps of the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. But what is absolutely amazing here is that it's not Somebody on the outside betraying Jesus. It's one of his own disciples. One who breathed the same air that he breathed, lived in the same place that he lived, ate with him, heard him, saw him. 
One who, who was exposed to all of that. And that's the one who betrays Him. Not someone who's on the outside looking in. Not someone who detested Jesus. One who walked day in and day out with Jesus. One of His disciples. Who would have ever thunk that? Who would have ever come up with that scenario? That would be one of His disciples. And this is just the beginning of the betrayal. We'll see more of that next week when we look at the institution of the Lord's Supper. But what Mark does tell us in these two verses is that after this devotion, this act of love to Jesus that this woman did, that after that, Judas Iscariot leaves Jesus and the disciples and goes to, of all people, the chief priests. And why does he go to them? In order to betray Jesus. To, to hand Jesus over. To be a part of the plot that these religious leaders can seize Jesus and still keep it cool with the Passover crowd. And so they hear the words of Judas Iscariot <laughs> and they're delighted. And they rejoice. They had joy in their hearts. They're jumping up and down. One of his own is going to betray him. We don't have to come up with a plot, a strategy. One of his own will tell us how we can seize him at a time that is opportune and won't get us in trouble. And so, they even promised him money. You're going to betray him, but we'll give you some money. And so here was a woman who wasted perfume that cost 300 denarii, contrasted with a man, Judas Iscariot, who wasted his life for 30 pieces of silver. Do you see that contrast? The woman is being accused of wasting all of this expensive perfume to show her devotion to Jesus. But here is Judas Iscariot willing to waste his life, to pour his life down the drain by betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. What a sad, sad testimony. So our text teaches us some valuable lessons, and let me quickly go through them. Religion and practice are not the source for devotion to Jesus. Religion and practice is not the source for devotion to Jesus. You got the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, they're religious. We got religion inside and outside, so to speak. Religion all over them. They're the custodians of Judaism. They're religious, but they hate Jesus. 
And you got Judas Iscariot, privileged, beyond all means. Uh, Who of us would not want to have been in his shoes and be exposed to the works of Jesus and the words of Jesus, to be with Jesus day in and day out, to have Jesus pour into his life? But privilege doesn't result in devotion to Jesus. You can be privileged by coming to church. You can be privileged by reading a Bible. That doesn't mean that you're going to love Jesus. That doesn't mean you're going to be devoted to him. You can be religious and end up like the scribes and the chief priests. So keep that in mind. Devotion to Jesus doesn't come from religiosity. It doesn't come from privilege. And sacrificial devotion, that's the second lesson, is expected of Christians. When we talk about loving Jesus, when we talk about being devoted to Jesus, it costs something. It's more than just singing. It's more than just coming out on a Sunday morning. There are times that it ought to be clear to all that you are devoted to Jesus and that you love him. Just like it was with this woman, this unnamed woman. It was clear. Even though people misinterpreted, it was clear in the eyes of Jesus that she loved him. Devotion to Christ, devotion to Christ might be misunderstood by others and even criticized. Your love for Jesus might not be embraced by everyone. They might misunderstand it. I remember when my sister and I had a situation that came up and we chose to be devoted to Christ and to his word and to his ways. And we received some nice emails that was a verbal spanking for our stand. I remember my sister telling me she got the, an email, and I kind of sympathized with her and thought I got off scot-free. And then the next day, I got this, another email, just like hers, that basically berated us. Why? Because of our devotion to Christ. If you think your devotion to Christ is going to cause you to escape from criticism, you're fooling yourself. But keep in mind the other lesson is that devotion to Christ is taken note of by Jesus Christ. He sees. He observes. I'm not saying that there's going to be another book of the Bible where your acts of devotion will be added to it. But I do want you to know that Jesus has gone on record that he takes note of those who are devoted to him. So the second stanza of that song, more love to thee is, once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek. Give what is best. This all my prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. May that be our prayer. May the example of this unnamed woman 
Help us to have a greater love and a greater devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful example of this unnamed woman. Thank you that you have put her on the pages of Scripture, and that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, that the story about her love and devotion to you, how she poured out expensive perfume on your head beforehand, before the time that you go to the cross and die and pay the penalty for our sins. Thank you, Lord, for this marvelous example. May we, as your people, at various times and in various ways, demonstrate our love and devotion to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.